As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me your host Chloe Timms. This week I'm talking to Aoife Fitzpatrick about her historical novel The Red Bird Sings. Aoife is a native of Dublin, Ireland. Her debut novel won the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize in 2020. In this episode we discuss the unbelievable true story that inspired her gothic novel how her research trip to West Virginia helped her get the tone and the voice right of her novel, and why she applied for Arts Council funding. But first, here's Aoife with an excerpt from The Red Bird Sings. On June 22nd, 1897, Miss Minnie Gross, recently graduated from the Lewisburg Female Institute, took her seat in the Greenbrier County Circuit Court. And in the shadow of the bench where Justice Joseph McWhorter presided, she set her hands to the stenotype machine. The temperature was holding above 90 degrees, the paper wilting as Miss Gross struck the keys, feeding the narrow roll toward the floor. Upon this cream pulp was the court's official record, the only evidence that the jury would be allowed to consider in the trial of Trout Shoe for the murder of his wife, Zona Heaster Shoe. This transcript was to make no mention of Mary Jane Heaster, mother of the victim who rose from her seat in hatless dishevelment as the defendant took the stand. Dressed in full mourning, her percale unfashionably loose, she might have been painted stark upon the glowing summer air. The frock in blackened bone, the face and hands primed in grey, her expression uncommonly frank. Mr. Shoe wore a fresh linen suit and a starched white shirt, both of which he had begged from his jailer, Constable Shawver. And with his mild gaze, resting on the jury, he made his plea. Not guilty. Hi Aoife, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to have you on with me today to discuss your debut novel, The Red Bird Sings. Hi Chloe, it's so so very nice to meet you. We're just saying before we started how we're stable mates with Nell Andrew as our wonderful agent and it's yeah it's fantastic to meet you and thank you so much for the invitation. Thank you for being here. So can you start by telling us what The Red Bird Sings is about? Uh, The novel is it's historical fiction that is based on a true story so it's set in 1897 And it's based on the story of a woman called Zona Heaster, who lived in a place called Meadowbluff in West Virginia, which is obviously in the United States. And 
Zona, when she was about, not completely sure of her date of birth, but when she was about 24 years old, she married a man called Trout Shoe. So he was a blacksmith who was relatively new to the area. She would have known him for maybe about three months before they married. So it was relatively whirlwind romance, even for those days. Uh, but Zona was dead three months later and Trout was to go on to be tried for her murder. So that's something that, you know, at the beginning of the novel is that Trout Shoe is going to be accused of the murder of his young wife, Zona. But there was a very particular circumstance um, in the, the and this is part of the true story also, surrounding his indictment, which is that Zona's mother, who is called Mary Jane Heaster, um, claimed to have had visions after her daughter's death, saying that her daughter visited her to tell her the truth of what had happened, which was that her husband had killed her. So it went from a situation where Zona's death was considered to be perhaps of natural causes to a situation where her husband was on trial for her her murder. So that's the basics. There are lots of spoilers, obviously, I could say about the true story. We won't go down that road, but they're the the nuts and bolts. That's kind of the, the skeleton that the story hangs on. Yeah. Mm. Where did you first hear about this story? Because it's uh, completely extraordinary and it's not the sort of story that you hear very often. So where where did you uh, hear about it first? It's not. I heard about it first um, actually on a podcast. I remember where I was. I was just going for a walk in the park and it was a science podcast, I think, on the BBC. I'm going to say it was Alex Shaw, but I'm not sure who said it. And it was a, an On This Day feature where they were saying On This Day in 1897, a particular thing happens that again would be a huge spoiler for the book. But they they brought up this story about this woman named Mary Jane Heaster in Greenbrier County and some extraordinary lengths that she had gone to in pursuit of justice for her daughter, who she was convinced had been murdered. I think the story just really stuck with me uh, because obviously superficially it has these very extraordinary elements um, that somebody saying they saw the daughter of their ghost and spoke to her and you know accused her husband of murder like that that is very extraordinary. I think what stuck with me most was imagining Mary Jane Heaster, who lived in the countryside quite a ways out of t- town, maybe an an hour, you know, on a, on a wagon to come into Lewisburg, which would be the nearest town where the Greenbrier County Circuit Court is. So there would have been a lot of jurists a lot of lawyers around that town a very formal environment a lot of educated men I guess she didn't have a vote she had no authority to speak really publicly no cause to do it so how did she find herself in a situation where she was so haunted by the need for justice for her daughter that she managed to navigate that environment it just seemed extraordinary because she's it's quite um she had a, a, pre, a pre-feminist existence, if that's even a, a term that we could talk about. She wouldn't have had any vocabulary, even in terms of suffragism or certainly in terms of her situation as a, a woman and the kind of life that she was leading. Um, so there was no support in her community for this this idea of how women might break out of the roles or the situations or the voicelessness that they might have had. So for her to have originated the actions that took place within the stories just seemed absolutely extraordinary and something to 
not just write about, but that when when you think about the story and the things that happened in terms of domestic homicide or domestic violence, there's really not very much that has changed. I mean, if you were to stand over Mary Jane's shoulder, stand behind her and look toward the future, really a lot of the shapes remain the same societally in terms of how women may be isolated when their homes um, might be controlled by a partner and where there there may be incidences of control uh, violence you know that might result in not just injury but life-changing injury or in the case of the book really is the theme of domestic homicide so i'd love if you could tell us a little bit more about two of your characters and i'm Mm. thinking particularly of zina's mother and her friend can you tell us about them and their relationship to Zona? Um, Mary Jane Heaster. So I, I mentioned Mary Jane at the start that she was the, the first person that I had heard about when I heard about the story, Zona's mother, who um, she is, she's living in Meadowbluff from West Virginia and she is a farmer's wife. Um, they're blue collar uh, land owners so they're kind of, you know, people think about it when they, they ask me about the book, they kind of are, they, oh, they're very poor or they lived in poverty or, but not really. I mean, I think they would have had a certain amount of money, but they also would have had these particular people had a large enough farm that they would have been able to, to kind of barter, that she'd inherited 98 acres of land I discovered in a newspaper not long before. So trying to put them in the, the context of a family who maybe had, small amount of means that had some hope for their daughter making maybe you know a half decent marriage to another farmer or so Mary Jane was not very happy by all accounts real and fictional when this blacksmith comes along um perhaps it was in terms of how quickly they got married I think one of the things that happened was that she fell out of touch with her family um fairly quickly I think almost immediately after she was married she moved closer to the town and she just didn't see her very much there was always some excuse you know for Zona not to see her mother to see her family so Mary Jane's way of handling things in the book she's she's having difficulty with her marriage as well because she's very dedicated to her way of life and it finds it as as noble as it actually is fair to say that farming is quite a noble life Um, But her husband is getting different ideas about modernity and about kind of his role, how he might kind of expand to be maybe an an inventor. He sees himself as maybe an Edison type or, you know, like Tesla or Westinghouse or somebody. He's going to come up with some incredible invention for the farm that is going to make them lots of money and move them away um, from their current circumstances. But Mary Jane is quite resistant to that. because what place is she going to have in it, really? So I think that begins to, because she she can't play a public role in that, and she does love the life that she already has, difficult as it is. She kind of feels this cold wind of modernity coming in and, and starting to create fractures in her life. So I think even before anything happens to Zona, um, she's rebelling a little bit as much as she can against her confines even in terms of the clothes that she wears that she's just really doesn't want to be restricted by her corsetry anymore or she's thinking about a talent that she had when she was younger for spiritualism that she was very interested in um so Mary Jane begins to have the just these ambitions an ambition to have more 
attention, <laughs> perhaps not always in the most positive ways. So she's she's nurturing this interest that she has in spiritualism that really comes to fruition um, after Zona dies. So she's very haunted, uh, I mean, literally and figuratively by the the need for justice. Um, I think it's one of those situations that you'll see in the novel that after Zona dies, there are many things that when you look back, you've got this 2020 hindsight about what they they may have meant and comes to a point where, yeah, she needs to have this courage of her convictions in terms of whether she's going to pursue Trout in the way that she really believes that she should. Lucy then is a fictional character, but it, it seemed to make perfect sense that Zona would have lived in a context where she, she had female friends, you know, peers, people she might have been to um, school with, people that she knew in the community. Um, and Lucy also, because she's not inside the family, she's able to observe things in a slightly more objective way. So Lucy, who lived quite close to Zona originally, her mother has a quite an advantageous marriage to a jeweler in Lewisburg. So she's moved away maybe when she was about 12 years old and she has a different kind of a, a life she, I think it's quite bored with really how she's living because she's expected to be just a young lady and to enjoy maybe the, the the luxuries and the money that they have and their nice house, but she's not really finding a lot of meaning in that. So what she would like to do really is become a journalist. She's quite inspired by, or would have been quite inspired by journalists like maybe Ida Tarbell, um, who was one of the original muckrakers in, in America who wrote great, she wrote about the life of Lincoln and later wrote about the Standard Oil Company, about Rockefeller. So Lucy, I don't know, the jury's out maybe on how good a journalist she's ever going to, to be, but she certainly has um, the drive there that she wants to report on crime and you know politics and current affairs, but she's really just being encouraged to write about society and maybe fashion and some nice la ladylike things, you know, not something that's going to put a woman in danger and be on a, a be a beat reporter. So that's the these are her ambitions at the time that her her best friend dies and she discovers that she has the metal to maybe do some investigation into what may have happened. I think she and Mary Jane also have different ideas about how to approach it. I think when something serious happens within a family or between friends, um, there can be a lot of conflict about how to approach the problem because there's so much at stake. And I, I think there there is some there is definitely conflict between Mary Jane and Lucy in terms of how they should really pursue um, justice for Zona. And I think in the end, they both contribute in their own ways. How do you make that decision then of how much is what you've learned from your research? And I'm going to ask you about your research in a bit, because mm. I know you went to West Virginia where the, your novel set. But how do you make that decision then between imagination and fact and the kind of gaps in between how did you decide kind of um you know be between what we were going to keep as the real thing and what you were going to invent yourself yeah it's a really good question isn't it I think um I was lucky maybe in terms of the the, the types of fragments that existed um about this story were maybe snippets of um, 
dialogue, you know, from the the trial, very very tiny amounts maybe of Mary Jane's testimony that she she gave some like a key piece of testimony. Uh, some local histories that people had written looking into, um, I guess, you know, where Trout was from, maybe when he had arrived there, bits and pieces about the family, um, what their their backgrounds might have been, little snippets from uh, the census. You know, it was, it was so fragmentary that to, what was left for me to do was to kind of pull it together with some fictional elements. And I think I approached it trying to use as little intervention as as possible so imagination in terms of the the characters obviously um not too much imagination i guess in terms of the plot with this one in terms of the overall plot so plots maybe but the the overall progression of what happens there are quite a lot of key pieces there like there's a lot of drama genuinely gothic drama that <laughs> emotionally driven that happened in the real story with this so it was really to to pick um which of those where where to place each of those to to really dramatize it to best effect and to bring it the the truth of the story hopefully in terms of the experiences that zona and mary jane and the fictional lucy would have had but there's kind of um even with historical fiction you're looking for the inevitability in the story maybe so yes this extraordinary thing happened but why why did it happen like every step along the way has to be leading to that point so i i think maybe that limits the amount of imagination that you need to have if you're focused on character and how that person came from this a to b to c to d to so, so that nothing except what happened in the end could possibly have happened that was the main focus that probably gave the balance between um, the imaginary elements or the fictional elements and the, the the true story. And just some of the, you know, when you read the novel, you'll see that there are, it's probably hard to believe that some of the things in it actually did happen, but they they, they did. That's maybe for another, <laughs> it was a spoiler podcast, but yeah, some very extraordinary things really did happen. Yeah. So tell us about your research trip then. Uh, how did you go about it? At what point did you think, okay, I've, I've got my film now and now I need to go home and, and write this book. Tell us about your uh, your research. The research, yeah. I My trip to West Virginia was amazing. It's, I mean, it is staggeringly beautiful. I recommend that anybody would go um, in the, the fall um we were really lucky actually we went quite late in november and we got the the best of the the color in the leaves it is absolutely like staggering there are so many trees there and so many beautiful drives through the trees and beautiful rivers and but the the best place that i went when i was there was to the north house museum which is uh, an old building somewhat adapted in Lewisburg and Lewisburg like i was saying earlier is the town where the the courthouse is which is still very much as it was at the time of the trial. The North House Museum is where the Greenbrier Historical Society work and they have an amazing archive there. So they were brilliant to me in terms of um, just producing just materials that they thought that I would find useful. And one of the, this sounds staggeringly dull, but one of the most useful things that they gave me were the biennial and agricultural reports from the late 19th century. And actually there's a lot of colour in it because people were very serious about their farming, very serious about their community and about writing off these kind of little colour pieces about what, what was happening, you know, the, the fairs and what kind of 
pigs, breeds of pig were new and what kind of apples you should buy. And that was, it was a, an article, one of those that told me, okay, this is actually the tone of the kind of language I'm using. So if I feel like I've hit upon this. I feel like that really, I felt confident leaving there that I'd, I'd gotten those aspects of the book right. But also, um, you know, a, a, a man came in when I was there who happened to bring some antiques that had been cleared out of, you know, an attic in, in a house um, that included a little tiny 19th century women's black jacket that I was able to handle and put into the museum yet I was able to grab it and have a little feel of like what the homespun seams were like and what the fabric felt like and that the size of it was so tiny and it was really helpful in thinking about Mary Jane for example that she's wearing um, a lot of black clothes in the book and her 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 morning wear or her her weeds you know widow's weeds and another man came in also and could see some of the research that I was doing. There's a picture, there's one photograph that is purported to be of Trout Shoe, the, the blacksmith, the accused. And he pointed to it and said he was married to somebody who was a descendant of Trout Shoe's, relatively distant at this point. But he said that that photograph, it's definitely not of Trout Shoe, that there is only one photograph of him in existence and his mother kept it above her heart until the day that she died. Wow. well that's that is a very interesting piece of information for a novelist thank you very much <laughs> the kind of background that Trout Shoe might have had but um yeah it was amazing and also they had uh recently um acquired lots of 19th century farm implements so I was able to go and look at this collection and handle it and really get a sense of um how bespoke I guess people's tools were and their lives were that they they made things and used things to 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 suit them very exactly even in terms of the kind of gloves that they might use for corn shucking you know would be very specific to that person or to that family um and the idea of mass production or even kind of being able to repair or replace wouldn't have been a very big thing for the Heaster family but it, it just told me a lot about how they lived and how important their belongings were to them and how their particular household really would have been an expression of who they were in a way that we might not express in terms of like going out to shops and <laughs> buying things. Yeah, it was just very interesting to be immersed in the environment, very specific local information and come away feeling quite confident about it. Mm. How much had you written or planned before you went out there? Was Were you kind of going out there with a, a very strong sense of what you already knew or had, or were you go, did you go out there with the kind of the bare bones, I guess, of the story? I went with a very strong sense of character and I went with probably quite a lot of meat on the bones, but that changed over time. I think I was at the beginning of the MFA. I did an MFA in creative writing in UCD in 2018 and 2019. So I went to West Virginia at the start of that. And um, yeah, I, I mean, to begin with, I had probably I was experimenting with between five and seven different voices that I, I wasn't entirely set on what the structure would be or what characters would or would not be included in terms of having their own voices. and. After going to West Virginia, I guess it was a combination of being there and coming back with so much information that I could apply and 
kind of whittling everything down to being um, simpler, I guess, maybe than it was before and finding a more direct line through the story um, and through character because there were so many things that really kind of had to be included in terms of plot, things things that had definitely happened. Um, trying to work around that, yes, I, I had a, a, a clearer idea through the Masters and through um, the research that I did as to where I needed to pair back, I would say, to make it work. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. So I want to talk about the Lucy Cavendish Prize because yeah. in 2021, and I just wondered what it was that sparked you to enter the competition and how that competition changed your entire writing journey. That was, I mean, I still can't believe when you're saying you won the Lucy Cavendish Fiction Prize. Did I? I did, that just doesn't sound right. <laughs> it just still seems kind of unbelievable um yeah I had finished my master's at that point and I hadn't started submitting the novel it wasn't really ready to submit I was thinking maybe three to six months after that I might start sending it out but it seemed like a great deadline and it seemed like a really good way I think that's what competitions can be really good for is just getting your head in a space where you have a piece of work that you're doing to a certain level for a certain date and you're just putting it out there you're also um risking the rejection so you're just kind of you're building your work and you're building your I don't know what else you're building your armor your I don't or not I don't know you're just getting used to having your work out there and getting responses to it good or bad calluses will we say calluses I don't know um so that was probably the main reason I, I wasn't very hopeful when I entered it because I had obviously read books that had won or been shortlisted for the prize before and I just thought absolutely there's zero chance here but you know a good exercise um so by the time I was long listed and shortlisted and then won I was just kind of shocked shocked to be honest I, I still am um probably the best part of the prize um they're great people at Lucy Cavendish College. I mean, they're incredibly um, passionate and committed to women's writing. They really are. I would actually, I would love to be there for the deliberations that they have, you know, for their final panels. I'd say they're they're very intense and brilliant. And mm. yeah, they're, they're very, they've got pretty, I'm, present company excluded. You can see they have an incredible eye as well, can't you, for like the people that they've chosen over the years. They really do have an eye for for talent. Um, 
so there's the people at Lucy Cavendish College and there's also the people that you meet through the prize, you know, whether that's kind of mostly on Twitter, I would say. But there's kind of a nice community around it too. And I think when you are, you haven't been published yet, it's nice to connect with people in that kind of easy way and kind of talk and just know that there are other people out there who are doing the same thing. I mean, this is to say everybody says the same thing about this, really, don't they? That it's just writing is quite isolated. So it's isolating because you do have the opportunities to connect with other people, but you can feel that you're just living in your own brain. You can even forget you have a body like half the time because you're just sitting there doing your work, not talking to anybody else about it, having no outlet for it really. Um, and just starting to connect with people outside of that, I think is a really important thing for, I don't know, for, for every aspect of your writing, really your sanity, not least least of it I don't know the answer to this question but I I think I do um so when you won the Lucy Cavendish Mm. I'm imagining that Nell was a judge and she selected you well she she offered to represent you at that point or was there kind of separate conversations well I think Nell um Nell's with Rachel Mills Literary now so I think that transition happened kind of during the course of the prize. So she wasn't a judge, I think maybe put me on the long list or maybe it was part of the screening, but wasn't around for the rest of the, the prize. Yeah. So the conversation happened out, outside of the, mm. the prize in the end. Um, but it is great for people who enter the prize, I think, have a lot of access and opportunities. It definitely attracts attention if somebody were going to enter the prize. I would say, yeah, be be online, have some kind of social media, maybe Twitter, follow people, follow agents, follow whatever, because you don't know who might contact you at a different at, at a time where you've been long listed or short listed and you might have some interest. It's I think that's definitely worthwhile. Yeah. You also received funding from the Arts Council Ireland to write mm. the book. Obviously, it's a hugely complicated process for applying for funding but I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about um kind of how that that funding supported you yeah um money is always good isn't it what does money buy us money buys us time (laughs) and money buys us trying not to worry too much about I mean I feel incredibly lucky that I was able to get to a point where I could even consider you know taking the time full time to work on the novel and definitely um having the Arts Council grant, my grant was 5,000 euro, which definitely helped to take um, stress, I guess, away of feeling like you're investing in something both. I mean, in the early days, you're investing financially in something too, because you're you're not doing other work. So you would really need to be able to, to feel that you're not digging too big a hole for yourself. Um, it helped massively, yeah, in terms of life expenses. Um, and I, do, I don't know, do you have an equivalent in the UK yeah yeah there's a well there's an arts council England um and I know just from speaking to various people who have applied for it is incredibly complicated to apply but obviously very worthwhile doing so um and I think there's two different types of funding you can apply for um one is something like finding your practice and the other one is I have no idea what it's called but um they're very you know very involved in terms of 
you have to to lay out what you would use the money for and and I'm sure it's very similar um to Arts Council Island but um I have never looked into it just because the thought of it is terrifying but um <laughs> but I know it's very it's very rewarding and 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 I'm sure that for particularly if you're do, say doing like a, a very expensive research trip or you need to go and I don't know go to Glasgow and look up something really important then I'm sure that the uh the funding would help massively it's uh I think in a way I think sometimes the application process is is almost off-putting so off-putting that people don't do it but I think well myself included but um obviously it's it's a really important thing to do if if um you know you feel that support would would benefit you yeah and it's it's something to get help with too isn't it I know the Arts Council is quite good here in terms of um having seminars you know where you can go and you can ask questions or you can see what the how to apply or to make the process seem um simpler I think also if you know people who've applied successfully before it's always a good idea maybe to see if they would share um their application with you um not that you find anything earth shattering in there, but sometimes somebody just approaches something in a much simpler way than you did. Or I mean, this is, this, you don't know what you'll discover, I suppose is what I'm saying, mm-hmm. but it's, it's, it's definitely a good idea to get help with that and to see if you can have a look at what a successful application has looked at. I would definitely do that. Yeah. And Ireland also has a pilot program for um, basic income for the arts at the moment. I don't know if you've heard about that, mm-hmm. um, that if it's successful, people will be able to apply for, yeah, basic income to remain working in the arts and not abandoning the arts because you just cannot make ends meet. So if that works out, hopefully it will. There'll be, a, you know, very meaningful support for mm. people in you know, visual arts, music, dance, architecture, circus, all, all kinds of. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Yeah, imagine that. So, mm. yeah, the pilot program is is at the moment and they have a control group as well for people who are not receiving the money to see how um, that might be working for them. And I'm in the control group, so I'm giving my feedback <laughs> about <laughs> how, how great it would be maybe to have more support money. Uh, yeah. when you have a two book deal and you're going to have to deliver that book. So mm-hmm. there's a limited amount of time that you can spend on other work. Um, yeah, all the support for the arts is just becoming more and more important really. I think um so that's it's really been wonderful to see Mm. so I'd love to hear a little bit more about your journey throughout publishing so from I guess the moment you signed your contract to now and I was Mm. wondering if there's anything you've experienced Mm. in that time that you found particularly difficult or challenging and how you think you would advise the next cohort of debut novelists so let's say 2024's debut novelists who are out there and I hope they're listening um what would you give (laughs) what advice would you give to them advice okay everybody so I don't know if I have advice I can say a little bit about my experience I guess and if anybody chimes with that then either do the same or do something completely different (laughs) than I did I've had, you know, I've had quite a good experience in terms of my publisher has been fantastic. Um, They're great in terms of communication. Um, Editing has been really great for me. I think the book has been published really nicely. So I've had, I think, as good an experience really as you can have. And I think I've been 
very just very fortunate and the people I've been working with everything has gone really really nicely for me um that the actual process of like coming up to publication I think I found that quite intense too doing kind of the pieces of PR that I did were were fine I enjoyed them it was all good everything was fine but I got quite you know I think the key kept winding and winding I think and the adrenaline kept going up and up and I, it, there was no kind of release for a long time. And I did get very, very sick after the book came out. I had my launch and I think I got sick about, you know, five minutes after that, the germs. And I found it very hard to 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 shake it off as well. So I definitely did not pace myself. I think I was kind of trying to push harder from inside myself to to hope for a success or to make things happen in a way that really things that I just had no control over I guess it's all part of just trying to do a good job too isn't it um yeah I just really wanted to to try and do a good job of everything and a lot of it was new to me too I mean you're you're, you're sitting in at your desk and you're writing your book and that's great but then there's there's the shock <laughs> being outside and talking to people and maybe doing an interview on live national radio or something that you're just not used to doing. You think they're mad for having you on without checking that you're kind of sane and have everything in order to begin with. It's just it's lots of situations that you might not be used to. Um, I'm determined kind of second time around to just just not stress about that stuff. I guess that it's important, but it's not worth um yeah getting this big adrenaline build up I think trying trying to have time to relax is that the right word can you relax when you're coming up to publication I'm not completely sure time to yeah perspective give give yourself some breaks try not to be just 24 7 um focus try not to make it your your whole life even if it is just for those few months well, as you mentioned, second time round, finally, mm. but can you tell us anything <laughs> about what you're working on next? Um, yes, I can tell you a certain amount. I can tell you that it is historical fiction. Um, I'll be going a little bit further back in time. Um, I think it's a companion to the first book in certain ways that, as you can tell, I'm not going to give you too much detail about it <laughs> um, in terms of, yeah, the first book, for example, I think is a little bit about women who are living within certain confines, kind of exploding within those confines. You know, this is you're not allowed outside of these walls. So what you if there's something that you need to accomplish, you have to accomplish it. I suppose like Ginger Rogers was saying backwards, but in heels, you know, you have all of these things that are working against you. How are you going to achieve what you want when you can't change those parameters? It's a companion, I think, for the first book in that sense. And I am writing about a female historical figure. Oh, very intriguing. Well, I can't mm. wait to find out more <laughs> about what this next book is going to be. But Eva, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, Chloe, you're so brilliant. Thank you for having me. That was Aoife Fitzpatrick talking about her historical novel, The Red Bird Sings, which is out now and available to buy. And if you'd like to support this podcast, debut authors and independent bookshops, you can now shop in the Confessions of a Debut Novelist bookshop hosted by bookshop.org, which I've linked down below in the show notes. 
If you fancy buying any of the books you've heard on this podcast, then the majority of them can be found in this bookshop. And if you can, I would really appreciate you supporting me, supporting the authors and independent bookshops by buying them through this online store. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time.